This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. like a, an odd one but we've got a missing persons case that does have like some interesting ties to it i believe so this guy goes into namus august 14th of 2018 up in mahoning county in youngstown ohio he's an african-american male that's five feet seven inches tall he was 200 to 210 pounds he went missing december 25th of 2007 uh, he's got black hair. He's got hazel eyes. He's got a lot of tattoos. Uh, I don't know if you saw in like some of the different images they have of him. He has a, a like a whole set of sleeves. Now he had a weird thing happen where they stuck somebody else in his Namus profile. I don't know if you saw this. the The description of this guy. His name is Albert Donald Bird the Third. He was 33 years old when he went missing. If he was alive now, he'd be 49-ish. He's got a Charlie project. It basically just says Bird was last seen on the morning of December 25th, 2007, when he was dropped off at a gas station in Youngstown, Ohio. He's never been heard from again. Bird was not reported missing until January 3rd, so over a week after his disappearance. But I noticed that he had some NamUs updates where they have his picture, and it's obviously a mugshot, and then they have what I call gang records, but they're not always gang records, but that's what, that's the name of the photos, and that's when they take real clear photos of the tattoos on arms and forearms and whatnot. When they do that, and you see multiple versions of them, that typically is in a police station. In this instance, it actually looks like it's in a jail and they're taken at different times because he's wearing different outfits in the different times. He has a criminal record in, in Mahoning County. But what was interesting, and the reason I brought him up today, one, he's missing and it's Christmas. He went missing at Christmas. Um, he's listed a number of places, but it, it's 
real slim pickings as far as good information about him. But I, I, I found this article, and I was going to bring it up here since it's Christmas time. Now, this is not the person I'm talking about directly, but this is uh, an article from November 2018, and it's out of the Mahoning County Common Police Court that they're talking about this. It has an update from September 2019. Here's what that article says. It says that on Tuesday, meaning right before uh, the November 7th day, so it'd be November 6, 2018, Albert Bird IV was found not guilty by a jury in the Mahoning County Common Pleas Court of murder. So it's the fourth, not the third. And on August 24th, uh, Albert Bird was arrested and charged with the murder of Jermaine Donlow Jr., after a confrontation at an apartment on Tyrell Avenue on August 1st, Don Lowe Jr. was stabbed. Judge Anthony Diapolito heard the case and found him not guilty. I'm only pointing that out here because somehow I believe some of these photos that have been mixed up along the way with Albert III are actually Albert Bird IV. Um, and I'm not saying these two things are related. I'm just pointing out that if you see some different pictures out there. Are you talking about the tattoo pics? No, there are. If you go looking for Albert D. Bird III, there are different pictures of him. Some of them include glasses and some he has cornrows. But that appears to actually be Albert Donald Bird IV. So I was just pointing that out that if you if you go... It kind of looks like they put somebody else, but that is, it could just be the light. I don't know. Yeah. So with this case, I'm highlighting it. I have a feeling they're not looking really hard. There are a lot of different criminal records in the name Albert Bird. And the last one, I'll just point this out. It is a criminal case that... Uh, is set for disposition in November of 2005. So generally speaking, he suddenly stops getting into trouble, if that makes sense. And I always wonder about those cases, like what happened that they stopped getting into trouble. That case ends in, basically it ends with a bench warrant And eventually they cancel the bench warrant. So I think they know what happened to him. He gets a bench warrant for a probation violation in January of 2007. And it finally gets canceled in May of 2009. Um, You know, the the bottom line is, I think the police are aware that Albert maybe got into something that ended with him passing away. They just don't know where he is. It's possible. So when I was, you know, I think I've said this before, when I was looking for these missing persons cases on Christmas, uh, some of them are kind of hard to, because there's no information, right? Or confusing information or information that we're not 100% applies to this person. But um, he was last seen being dropped off at a gas station on Christmas morning. And we have no idea uh, what happened to him. He wasn't reported missing for a week until... January 3rd. Yeah. So a little over a week, but he did go missing on Christmas morning and there's no telling what happened to him. 
Yeah, I had trouble searching for him even because, okay, in this little area with criminal records, there is an Albert Donald Bird. There is an Albert Donald Bird Jr. There is an Albert Bird the third, an Albert Donald Bird the third, an Albert Bird the fourth, and an Albert Donald Bird the fourth. It is very difficult when you get into those situations and you're hunting for a person when there's that many names in common in the same little area. Yeah. And you can't quite tell who's who sometimes. Yeah. It looks like, you know, uh, the police have a series of addresses in here that look like they're based around uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, There are slight variations in the addresses. I will say for the most part, with the exception of Albert, Albert Bird IV, it appears to be pretty minor criminal records overall. Um, he has some serious charges in there that that's all I'll say about it. Albert the third isn't really the focus of what we're talking about. Albert the fourth is not really what we're talking about. But there's definitely a, a, a lot of interaction with law enforcement in a way that I think the law, law enforcement locally know these guys really well. Um, and they may not all be related, but honestly, it kind of looks like they all are. Uh, even some of the Albert Bird Jr. stuff is actually attributed. Like there's some 2007 stuff with Albert Bird. I'm pretty sure it's the guy that we're talking about age-wise. But when I when I dig into him, there were a lot of incidents in 2007 that seemed to be domestic violence misdemeanors. He could have just walked away from his life. That would not be completely unheard of, but I have a feeling that uh, he found himself in some trouble and um, he's probably no longer with us. I wanted to mention him and talk about him a little bit today. That's a sadder missing persons case. And then I do have a exoneration for today. So our, ex- our exoneration case today is actually from 1932 and it comes out of Buncombe County, North Carolina. For demographics, it's a Caucasian male who's 31 at the time of the crime. And contributing factors were uh, perjury or false accusation. Now, he was convicted in 1932 and sentenced to death, but he's exonerated in 1936. I had never heard of this one before. I went and did a little digging into it. It's actually an interesting one, considering like the dates as to what the crimes are. In the early evening of September 27, 1932, Lonnie Russell, a 44-year-old filling station attendant in Asheville, North Carolina, was shot during an armed robbery. As the robbers fled with about $300, Lonnie Russell ran from the station and he hailed a passing car. He was taken to a hospital where he died a little while later. Gus Colin Langley and Wilsey Shorty Johnson were arrested in Wilmington, North Carolina, because they were driving a car with New Jersey license plates, and two witnesses reported seeing a car with such plates in the vicinity. A third witness, a hotel steward, stated that the fleeing robbers departed the scene in that vehicle. A female witness provided a sketchy description of the two robbers. One man was noticeably taller than the other, and the tall man had fair hair. I'm going to stop right there for a second. This is the 30s. And we're talking about cars with Jersey license plates in two different cities in North Carolina. 
Well, two different cities that are on opposite sides of the state. Yeah, Asheville is in the west in North Carolina, and Wilmington is in the far southeast corner of North Carolina. Yeah, you couldn't be uh, further apart, really, and still be in the state. I mean, you could be a little bit, but they're about 400 miles apart. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy to make this uh, connection, but we'll see, I guess. Yeah, well, not only that, but like in the 1930s, it's so strange for me to picture cars and license plates from different states. I know I know it's <laughs> Yeah, know it's, it's a thing. It's not that far back in time, but like it We're is on almost a hundred years, dude. Yeah, I know. Officers honed in on finding this car that had been described as having New Jersey plates. They located one such vehicle in the possession of Gus Colin Langley. He's a house painter. Langley is not from Asheville. He lives in Wilmington, 400 miles away. He had been living in New Jersey, but he had returned to his hometown of Wilmington to work with his father. He had a detailed alibi for the day before and the day of the crime. However, his vehicle was reportedly the only New Jersey car that the police located. Further, Langley had a criminal record, and it indicates in the profile for the National Registry of Exonerations that he was almost certainly known to Asheville police. I have questions about that, but we're going to keep going. According to the 1930 U.S. Census, he was at that time a prisoner in Asheville. So in my mind, that makes him probably known to the corrections officers and potentially known to like the sheriff. I don't know about being known to the police, but I guess it, you know, it could be because like you said, it's a hundred years ago. In any event, Langley and his friend, Will C. Johnson or Shorty were arrested in Wilmington and brought to the Asheville jail. Sheriff Lawrence Brown brought the witnesses who saw the robbers to view and identify Langley and Johnson in their jail cells, which is something that is not done today. Gus Langley's movements could have been easily verified, but the Asheville police were disinclined to investigate further and exculpatory evidence was ignored. For example, Langley's car was conspicuously tagged with advertising for his painting business, a detail that would have been hard for witnesses to miss. By his account, he had been far away from Asheville at the time of the murder, in the area between Wilmington and what used to be known as Fort Bragg. He encountered an assortment of persons who could have attested to his presence there. On the day before the murder, he and Johnson gave a group of army officers a ride to the fort. After dropping them off, Langley's car collided with a soldier on a bicycle, and a report of the accident was made on post. The men drove as far as Elizabethton, where car problems forced them to stop. They went to a police station in that town, and they received permission from an officer to sleep the night in their car. They spoke with him the next morning. After spending the night and morning in Elizabethtown dealing with their car problems, they began the drive home to Wilmington. Along the way, they had to pass through a toll booth at the Cape Fear River. Another man had the money for the toll, and this led to some discussion with the toll collector. Langley was able to borrow the toll money from a gas station attendant, and neither man had the money for the toll. 
This led to some discussion with the toll collector. Langley was able to borrow the toll money from a gas station attendant, and they crossed the bridge. At the time of Mr. Russell's murder, Gus Langley was at a party at his father's Wilmington home, 360 miles away from the scene of the crime, where many friends and acquaintances were present. In Langley's own letters from jail, addressed to the Fort Bragg soldiers and others, they were handed over for mailing, but seemed to have been unposted by the jail staff. Okay, so unposted. I'm going to explain that because I, I don't know if a lot of people know what that means. It basically means they were never sent out. They were never put in the box to go through the postal service. Right, which is, uh, it would be corruption, right? Yes. So instead, a fellow inmate was charged with mayhem whatever that means. His name is A.D. Cordell. He ends up placed in Langley's cell for two weeks in an attempt to elicit incriminating statements. In return for doing this, the charges against A.D. Cordell were dropped. In 1932, Gus Langley goes on trial. The hotel steward, Mr. Pace, testified to the presence of the car with New Jersey plates near the filling station. He was unable to point to more than a general resemblance between Gus Langley and the robber he observed. A.D. Cordell testified that Langley had confessed that he had committed the murder, but that he was confident of acquittal because he had arranged for many witnesses to falsely testify that he had been in Wilmington. Gus himself took the stand and told his story. He also produced several witnesses to attest to his presence at the Wilmington party. Their testimony seemed to only confirm A.D. Cordell's claims, and they were roundly dismissed in the closing argument of Prosecutor Zeb Nettles as a coached bunch of parrots. After two hours of deliberation, on December 23, 1932, Gus Langley was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Johnson, or Shorty, was tried separately but after a mistrial, the charges against them were dismissed for lack of evidence. So we talked about prosecutors a lot in, in this series of uh, cases that we've been covering. Calling the witnesses a bunch of parrots is interesting. And in some circumstances, that could definitely be uh, a ploy of some kind, don't you think? Like a ploy from which side? For for the prosecutor to like basically dismiss all of the witnesses is kind of heavy handed. I feel like um, it's that's always bad taste as far as the difference between having a case where it stands on its own and, uh, you know, saying things like this. Yeah. You see what I'm like yeah. to say like oh you liar liar pants on fire right that yes. kind of thing in the courtroom like to me it's undignified to you know call people I guess parrots aren't really liars they just repeat what they're told to say right yes and so um it uh to the extent that they had gotten this guy who um was in jail f- because he was charged with mayhem, which I assume is like disorderly conduct. They got him, they put him in a cell with the specific intent of getting uh, incriminating statements, right? Right. Anytime that happens, it, there's going to be issues. 
Like, I would, I would tend to agree. Yeah. That's never going to go well. The person's got something at stake um, because if they don't deliver, they're not going to get what's been promised them. And uh, it's possible they're threatened with even more. I I don't know that that's actually what occurred, but they're going to come up with something, right? Yeah. I, so I went, <laughs> I went two paths here. So the first thing was I, I went and looked up the history of jailhouse confessions. Have you ever like gone hunting for like how that came to be a thing? Not specifically like that topic, but they come up a lot. Yeah. I just thought, so this case is old and I thought it was interesting to look at uh, a couple of, of different things about the jailhouse confession. Um, I actually pulled a couple of articles related to Curtis Flowers case. Um, that was an interesting one because it had a lot of precedence about how jailhouse confessions could be used. Um, there wasn't anything in there that, do you know what I'm talking about when I say Curtis Flowers? Yes. Okay, so uh, that did not have as much as I was like really like looking uh, to break out. But I did find now this is a little bit of a tainted source. This is the Innocence Project's take on it. I was looking at it from the perspective of I, I was really trying to find the age of it all. But instead, I got distracted by how much money it's thought to cost. And the Innocence Project put out an article in 2019 Um, on their homepage. And that article was titled Informing Injustice, the Disturbing Use of Jailhouse Informants. The subtitle is Unregulated Jailhouse Informant Testimony Sends Innocent People to Prison and Even Death Row, Costing Taxpayers Millions and Failing to Bring Justice to Victims of Crime. I thought that subtitle was a really interesting rabbit hole to go down um, because it costs taxpayer millions and it fails to bring justice to victims of crime. So why are they even doing it? Like if, um, if- to, Because uh, the objective of justice is different uh, through, depending on the eyes of the beholder. Okay. Okay, so when a prosecutor is prosecuting a case, they want to win the case. Uh, when a a family is has lost a loved one uh, through foul play at the hands of another, they are looking for the person who actually did it to be uh, brought to justice. That makes sense to me. And uh, those are two different objectives, right? I mean, they shouldn't be, but they are. And so once you're at the point where a prosecution is occurring, there's, without sabotaging your own career, there's essentially no going back. Like, to go back on something. You're just saying from the commitment perspective, like, you you have to commit to doing it? The resources that are in the hands of a prosecutor at the point where they're like going to trial, right? Right. What, what the time it, cause it, when it says they, it costs taxpayers millions, what they're talking about is 
all the expenses involved in that situation, right? I got you. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, once a prosecutor has somebody that they're going after for, you know, a, a murder or another, you know, felony type violent crime, um, they have to commit to it. And their objective, once they've committed to it, is to get the person um, convicted. And that's where jailhouse snitches come into play. Because honestly, I feel like a lot of times they just lack uh, the ability to get the evidence needed. And so it does fall back on these like sort of uh, bottom feeder type. They're, they're criminals because they're in jail, but like, they're not at, usually they're not violent criminals, but they they're there and they can be used to do anything. Right. I mean, pretty much they will do anything um, that is asked of them to buy back their freedom or whatever, you know, the quid pro quo is there. But when you risk that it's from the standpoint of, a prosecutor obtaining a conviction, it's not from the standpoint of actually achieving justice. And there's no way that a prosecutor can feasibly believe that they're going to tell a jailhouse informant that if you can get statements that I can use at trial to convict this person, I'm going to let you out of jail there's no way that that person is going to come back to them and say, oh, well, he didn't say anything. Right, right. And, okay, I'm I'm going to pull some from this article to run with that idea for a second, and I want to, I want to hear more about what you have to say. So here's how it opens. What could be worse than going to prison for a crime you didn't commit in part because someone fabricated testimony against you? Making matters worse, these people providing that testimony receive leniency in their own cases or other benefits in exchange for the untruthful testimony. That's an interesting thing in and of itself. Not the benefits part. We know that can occur. But the fact that they get a little less justice because they're giving you fake justice or giving fake justice in your case. Jailhouse informant testimony is one of the leading contributing factors of wrongful convictions nationally and as of 2019, and the innocent staff talking about this, plays a role in nearly one in five of the 367 DNA-based exoneration cases. That number was kind of astounding to me. It's 75 cases out of 367. That's a that's huge, don't you think? Uh, one in yeah, yes, it's huge. Uh, that was that's twenty percent. Yeah, it's twenty percent. And what I thought was like sort of crazy about it was it, when you when you're in a situation where twenty percent of these cases are being uh, kicked out, and you know that there have been a jailhouse informant that has directly contributed to the wrongful conviction, I think it's a bigger deal when you're able to look at it from the perspective of these DNA-based cases where basically DNA pointed to someone else and ruled someone out. There's this, Correct. We could split a lot of hairs underneath that, but like just saying that part, it's kind of a big deal. Right. I would say that DNA 
exonerations take everything to a whole new level. It does. Now, it, it flips the switch on these uh, jailhouse informants' false testimony that has ultimately landed, uh, you know, the people that are being exonerated. It, fl- it flips it, right? Because there's no way what they were saying was true. I haven't seen any punishments come down, though, that have made a big deal, like as far as people who knowingly falsely testified, you know, 20 years ago or something, and then DNA comes back and exonerates the defendant, you know, now or 20 years later. I haven't seen where anybody's come down really hard, but I feel like that could be a very good example to set. Yeah, I would agree with you. I I think that like it it would be, it would be an an example that could be set. I don't, you know, I, I look at it and I sort of go, uh, how do we how do we start to balance that? And that's sort of the point of this article. Um, it is very interesting to like hear this lay all laid out. So going with what you said, they said the promise or expectation of possible benefits from prosecutors creates a strong incentive to lie. And the secretive nature of the informant system makes cross-examination and other legal safeguards against unreliable testimony ineffective at times. In many wrongful convictions, defendants were not given key information related to the credibility of the informants who testified against them, including benefits they received. Previous cases when they've acted as jailhouse informants and their criminal history. So one of the things that's come up in here quite a bit is some of these people are sort of career informants. Not all of them, but some of them testify in multiple cases. Right, and that kind of seems illogical, doesn't it? Yeah, a lot, a lot illogical. Um, uh, Skipping down a little further, it says, this campaign explores accounts of people who've been directly affected by either the illegal use of jailhouse informants or fabricated jailhouse testimony. And they're specifically referencing here exonerees James Kluppelberg, Ellen Riesenover, and Marvin Reeves. They've singled them out here to sort of talk about them. Ellen Reesover, in 1983, she tells the police about suspicious activity she had witnessed at a a local gas station. And so when she goes to the police with this information, instead of thanking her, using her information, they arrest her. And while she's waiting for trial, two different jailhouse informants get leniency on their own cases in exchange her testimony against her to basically say that she had confessed to the murder. Now, constitutionally, the prosecutor is obligated to disclose these deals with Ellen Reasonover's attorneys, but they don't do that. So if the attor- if the defense attorneys don't know about it, they can't raise issues of the credibility of what's happening. So Reasonover, she gets convicted of murder she was one vote away from a death sentence and she ends up receiving a life sentence. Now her, this is 83 when it kicks off, it takes until 1999 for her conviction to be vacated and for her to be released. But she's done 16 years in prison at that point. Centurion ministries got involved in 1993 and began investigating the case. And they found that prosecutors had withheld key evidence And among that key evidence was a tape recording where uh, Ellen Reasonover had denied her involvement in the case. They had withheld the fact that there was a jailhouse informant deal in place for those two informants. 
and like straight up evidence that they had by the time they were going to trial where one jailhouse informant was clearly lying and like contradicting themselves. Then James Kuppelberg, he's got a whole different thing going on. He gets wrongfully convicted and spends 25 years in prison for setting a fire that killed a woman and five children on the south side of Chicago in 1984. Now, more than three years after the fire, a man named Dwayne Glasgow was arrested for burglary, theft, and violation of probation. And during his questioning, Glasgow names Kluppelberg as having been someone going back and forth to the building where the fire broke out. In 1989, a judge finds Kluppelberg guilty of this 1984 fire in a bench trial. And as new evidence emerged of Kluppelberg's innocence, Dwayne Glasgow recants. He admits that he he had agreed to implicate James Kluppelberg in exchange for reduced prison time for the criminal charges he was facing with burglary, theft, and violation of probation. In addition, police reports were later discovered that documented an interview with a woman who said she may have started the fire after she set another fire less than three blocks away. And that was kept from Kluppelberg's defense. So he finally gets out in 2012. My point being, there's different levels of jailhouse informants where with Ellen Reasonover, she gets, she kind of turns herself in. And I know that's not what she intended to do, but she makes herself a suspect when she reports activity there. So then the prosecutor sends someone to get information from her. But with Kluppelberg, he just he gets implicated by somebody who is actually in trouble for something else. Does that make sense how they're different? Yeah. So then uh, Marvin Reeves, he was a co-defendant with Ronald Kitchen. Marvin Reeves spends 21 years in prison after he and Ronald Kitchen are convicted in 1991 of the murder of two adults and three children who were found strangled and burned in an apartment building on Chicago's South side. So they get convicted in 91 of this crime that occurred in 1988. They become suspects after a guy named Willie Williams calls up a Chicago police officer and claims that Ronald Kitchen had admitted to committing the crime with Reeves during a phone call that Willie Williams made to him from jail. So Willie Williams sort of makes himself uh, he, he makes himself a jailhouse informant as like, I guess Dwayne Glasgow did that too, but he drags two people in with him. Now they bring in Ronald kitchen. They arrest him. They interrogate him. And later on the people that were involved in his case would uh, be found to have been closing cases by torturing black suspects. So after hours of this torture, Kitchen signs a confession, and it also implicates Marvin Reeves. So Marvin Reeves gets convicted of the murders in 91. He gets sentenced to life in prison. And so the two of them go away based on Willie Williams talking and and injecting them. But the defense is never told that no such phone call between Willie Williams and Ronald Kitchen ever happened. Well, and so to me, like... Assumes facts, not in evidence. Right. Right. I'm just saying, like, where is this happening? Right. 
why is this not coming up that like, okay, you can talk about that, but where is it? Uh, what do you mean? Like, where do we get to talk about it in terms of like the system? No, I'm saying like when you're, when they are implicating him through stuff that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. like how does that even become part of a case? If the, if it doesn't exist, why is it even a, a factor? Well, I mean, that's, that's a good, hmm, that's a good point because there, I, you would think today, like maybe the reason so many of these stories are much older is because today we sorted some of that out. I don't know if that's the case though. There's a lot. Um, you asked me if I could see the difference in uh, the where, you know, sometimes you've got police making assumptions about somebody trying to report criminal activity and they end up being arrested when they didn't really do anything. And sometimes other people implicate others. Um, and yes, I do see the difference. However, what I don't see is where any prosecutor justifies that to themselves. Yeah, they're not they're not good prosecutors if they're doing that. And I, I, they really aren't. They're in fact they are actually criminals. I would say. Yeah, that's that's what uh, that's one of the interesting things. Okay, so the in this instance, the way that a jailhouse informant gets used, if we're going like like back to all of this, in my opinion, what they did with Cordell in Langley's case, which is the exoneration we were talking about, is criminal. When they're set, like, so when you've got a guy that's charged with mayhem, which if, if my understanding is correct, that's sort of an assault charge. That oh, it is? I just assumed it was like disorderly conduct, but I don't know that. Well, it, it was hard for me to sort. So I went and looked up A.D. Cordell. It's very hard for me to sort exactly what he'd been charged with. Closest thing I could find is he has some assault charges. Um, but when when a guy like that, is implicating a completely innocent person and the prosecution has all these other witnesses, but goes with the jailhouse informant to win. That's not necessarily corrupt, but to me it's criminal. Now it's corrupt if that's how they make all their cases. And that's what eventually happens with some of these others. I just mentioned Uh, some of these were found to be pretty corrupt cops in the, especially the ones I mentioned out of the Chicago area. Um, But I went down this other path. So when the wit, okay, this is how I get there. Gus Langley writes letters to all the people. Like he's like really responsible in like getting his witnesses together. And on the one hand, I was like, does that mean like he's guilty? He's collected all of this. I don't, the timeline doesn't really make it possible for him to have been at the shooting in Asheville, in my opinion. So when his mail is not posted by the jail staff, I started thinking, how long has it been a thing that like interfering with the mail is a federal crime? Have you ever looked at any of this up? I've never looked that up. I, I assume it. there's probably a good reason why. That that's a law to begin with, and um, well, so how long has it been a thing? So it goes all the way back to June eighth of eighteen seventy-two. The forty-second Congress at the time they revised some existing statutes and they enacted the first statutes against mail fraud for the post office department, and then they sort of they began to include wire fraud later 
and electronic systems added to that. And then they add tampering along the way. Um, so mail fraud is one thing, uh, but mail tampering is slightly different, but it's related to the expectation of privacy. And I can't find exactly where it would have been recognized for prisoners, but it is recognized for prisoners today. But along the way, I ran into like a really crazy thing. Have you ever heard of postal interception? Well, I don't know that I've heard of it, but I can I can infer what it means from the wording. Okay, so postal interception is the act of retrieving another person's mail for the purpose of either ensuring that the mail is not delivered to the recipient or to spy on them. And I found this tidbit that has nothing to do with exonerations, but I want to tell people because I think I knew that this went on. I just didn't know why this went on. The U.S. since 2002 has had the Postal Service run a mail isolation control and tracking program. Did you know this? Yes. I have informed delivery. Right. It runs under informed delivery. So for the, for people who may hear that and think that I'm crazy, you can find descriptions of this very easily. Um, they run it from 2002 until 2013. And then it gets revealed when they're talking about the FBI investigating uh, ricin laced letters that were sent to, I think Bloomberg got one and maybe one was attempted to be sent to Obama. But this is this program where the United States Postal Service takes photographs of the exterior of every piece of mail process in the United States. The Postmaster General stated that the system is primarily, primarily used for, quote, mail sorting, although it enables the USPS to retroactively track mail correspondence at the request of law enforcement. So allegedly this was created in the aftermath of the 2001 anthrax attacks that killed five people, including two postal workers. The, the claim to fame is they created this automated, automated mail tracking program so that postal service could easily, so that the postal service could more easily track hazardous substances and keep people safe. That's what they claim. Although I will say that what I did find that was interesting is the form for law enforcement or other investigators to request this information from the USPS has no authorization on it. It is literally a pull down click menu where you input the name or address that you want the information from. No one approves it. And they can instantly view the information. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I would assume that uh, because it's mail, right? I, I don't know that you would have a right to privacy. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting, not necessarily from a privacy perspective, but maybe from a data collection perspective. It is like it's it's basically mass surveillance um, in the fact that like law enforcement can access it. I was just really surprised that like mail covers a thing. I don't know if you know what that is, but on the request of a law enforcement agency, the U.S. Postal Service will record information like for a period of time going forward. And it's clearly defined by postal regulations, by different um, 
statutes, like that they can get this. Uh, it, I don't think it's considered a violation of the Fourth Amendment, but I do think they have uh, maybe not a warrant per se, but they can go through and they can put in a request and the request can be approved maybe by the Postal Service itself. And I think they only they only last for like X amount of time before a judge has to sign off on it. It's not the same thing with the tracking program, like the the mail isolation control and tracking program is just available. You don't have to have anyone approve it. So I thought that was interesting that I found that in hunting down this 1932 case, because I wanted to know if it was illegal, like a federal crime for the jailers to hold his mail. And you know, Um, at the time it was not. I was going to say, I I don't think it is going to be. And there's some interest that you could sort of debate there, right? Uh, As far as a prisoner's right versus uh, the reasons that that could be held uh, legitimately, right? Yeah. The, the mail could be held legitimately. That's really hard to balance, which is obviously why you have attorneys that, you know, go ahead and mail the stuff for you now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, because really um, it brings up a lot of interesting dynamics that I don't th- feel like a lot of people would ever even think about. Right. Like, so this guy is in jail. He was, for one thing, carted back from Wilmington 400 miles to Asheville, right? Yeah. Okay, he's now in jail. And once you're in jail, there you sit. Correct. He's writing letters, attempting to get witness statements. The people at the jail are screening his outgoing mail and not posting it. Or maybe they're not screening it, but they're not putting it in the mail, right? Uh, Right. That's weird. That's a it, weird thing. And it limits um, the number of witnesses he's able to gather because of what they're doing. Well, yeah. And so, like, if they're not doing that, then why aren't they posting his mail? Like, what does the corrections facility or the sheriff, I'm not sure where he was. What do the people that are holding him that are doing these, like, menial administrative tasks of keeping the the uh, the pretrial um defendant in custody, right? Yeah. What interest do they have in holding this man's mail? If it's not to, you know, somehow corrupt his case, why would they hold it? There, there's no reason, right? No, there's no there's reason not. for them to legitimately hold it. And if there was a reason we would hear, right? We would hear that like, Oh, they, they wouldn't post it because he was sending threats or he was whatever, right? They would yeah. have a legitimate reason that they would quickly say this is why. But the impression I get is like all these people that he sent letters to are, he's going, hey, why didn't you, at some point he's going, hey, why didn't you, you know, respond to my letter? And they're like, what letter, right? And that's how this is coming out. Because if you think about it, informed delivery certainly was not, a thing in, you know, 30, in the thirties. No, it was not. And, and so you have a situation where you have a uh, pretrial detainee saying, I put these to go, I put these in the outbox, right? And everybody's saying they didn't get them. So, you know, the attendees are going, well, we don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> it, it, 
yeah. So there it lays, right? That's it. That's, that's as far as it goes. So going back to the case, so where I kind of left off and I'm going to repeat myself because I, I have wandered off here. Sorry about that. After two hours of deliberation on December 23rd of 1932, Gus Langley is found guilty of murder and he's sentenced to death. Now, Shorty Johnson, he was tried separately. He gets a mistrial and the charges against him get dismissed for a lack of evidence. But that's not what happens with Gus Langley. Gus Langley is scheduled for execution seven times during his tenure at the state prison, uh, which is what is now the central prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. The first time was February 10th of 1933. His head gets shaved in preparation for the electrocution, but he receives a stay half an hour before his sentence would have been carried out. The execution was stayed on a technicality in passing sentence the trial judge had neglected to state for the record that Langley was guilty of first-degree murder, which at the time was the only class of murder punishable by death in North Carolina. So in June of 1933, the North Carolina Supreme Court remands the case back to the trial court, and the court states that he's guilty of murder, and they quickly resentence Langley to death. Now, Langley's relatives, especially his sister, Juanita, and the Wilmington witnesses, the people that knew he was really where they said he was, continued to challenge the conviction. And gradually, the evidence supporting Langley's story grows. In one example of previously undisclosed evidence, the female witness to the crime, who was only identified as Mrs. Frank Edwards, who was not called by the prosecution at trial, she provides an affidavit to the defense stating that she expressly told Sheriff Brown that the man she viewed in the jail cell, the dark-haired Langley, was definitely not the taller, fair-haired man she saw fleeing the crime scene. A new witness who saw the crime from a hospital window also swore that the robbers she observed were not Langley and Johnson. Contacts with these individuals and Langley's alibi witnesses eventually bore fruit. Upon receiving Langley's consent to the withdrawal of his appeal, Prosecutor Zeb Nevels, agreed to recommend that his sentence be commuted to life, and this was done on September 7th of 1933. Not the best outcome. But Governor J.C. Iringhouse, who had commuted the death sentence, assisted by the parole commissioner, Edwin Gill, he continued to have Langley's case reinvestigated in a series of hearings in which the Elizabethtown police chief, And those soldiers from what used to be Fort Bragg came and testified on Langley's behalf. So on October 31st of 1934, Gus Langley is finally paroled. He's granted a full prob, uh, he's granted a full pardon on August 5th of 1936. And in 1947, pursuant to a North Carolina act, uh, innocent persons for the time being spent in prison, he is awarded $927.80 in state compensation. Uh, He stated that he planned to divide the money with his co-defendant, Shorty Johnson, who had also spent nearly a year in custody before he was free. Uh, Apparently, he never split the money with uh, Shorty, though. Did you read what he did? Um, Yeah, he used it to get into the whiskey-making business. Yeah. So by 1950, Gus Langley was back in prison in uh, Georgia for bootlegging. 
He reportedly told the district court there that he used the same nine hundred dollars to get st- that same nine hundred dollars to get started in the whiskey making business. <laughs> I I thought this was an interesting exoneration case. Um, it is an interesting exoneration case, and uh, these cases um they bring out a lot of things that we don't typically think of, right? They just like aspects of things like, for example, in this case where um, supposedly the, uh, the custodians of the pretrial uh, defendants weren't posting the mail and that takes you to this like whole different place. Right. And so we kind of go around a lot of issues that are really fascinating to see sort of how we end up where we are today. Right. Um, I don't know about you, but until I started doing a lot of uh, research on crime cases, I actually, I had issues with the way our judicial system is set up, how it works now. Like I can pick, I'm just like everybody else. I can pick lots of bad things out. However, over time, having done a lot of research on a lot of different cases, like I realized that it could be so much worse yeah, it really could. It really could be worse. Um, this uh, this case, uh, you know, it has things that I wasn't able to get to. I don't know if you saw this, but it said that there was a bribe attempt that had been shown in his case in the New York Times archives. Were you able to find that? No, I wasn't able to find it. So uh, allegedly there was some attempt to bribe Zeb Nettles. Um, so I tried to find that I did. I didn't find the article. Like it, it appears in my Google searches, but when I go to access it, uh, it's not a matter of like it not being there when I click. It's a matter of it saying that like what I'm looking for doesn't exist in a couple of instances. I I realized something though in this one, and I thought about this related to these other cases. You know, these cases like Lonnie Russell, for instance. They never really get solved. Right. Um, And that's kind of the real tragedy because you've got a victim who, uh, in this case, was murdered. Um, And then you've got, you know, one defendant whose life was destroyed and another defendant whose life was temporarily destroyed. And, you know, we have no idea. Like, so he was fully exonerated. And it seems like you can't have that many witnesses testifying that you were 400 miles away and overcome reasonable doubt at the same time. Right. I'm just saying uh, you can't, I, I just, I feel like you can't cause the only way that that would occur is, um, you know, if they somehow impeach the credibility of all the witnesses, right. Yeah. Or suggest why, you know, they're not telling the truth or whatever. But you've got a situation where I, I would be interested to know about the bribe, but we don't have any further information, right? No, I don't. And I like I can't tell where the bribe came from or went. And I had done a, a pretty good amount of work to I found the blurb. It just says a charge an attempt was made to bribe solicitor Zeb Nettles uh, in the prosecution of Gus Langley, convicted here recently of the slaying of uh, Lonnie Russell, was made today at a hearing called for presentation of evidence looking toward granting 
Langley a pardon. It looks like it comes up with a governor. I tried to use a New York uh, Times time machine, but that's all it has in there is what I just said. So, well, was the bribe like an open court? I don't know. That's such a weird thing to say. Like, either way, um, I think that at the very best, uh, prosecutors like Zeb Nettles, uh, who, you know, they go on a little bit of a fishing expedition with whoever has the least, uh, least violent crime, least, uh, I, I don't know how they pick out who they're going to send in, right? <laughs> like yeah. to get the statements. Um, I feel like they're at the very best, they're misguided, right? Uh, to believe that, you know, they're going to have somebody come back out and say, oh, yeah, you just didn't say anything. Sorry. You know, I'm going to forego my opportunity to get out of jail free here. Um, right. I don't feel like they could, like, in good conscience, actually say they believe that, that that's what would happen if, you know, the defendant was, in fact, not guilty. Right. Right. Um, but that would be that's the only other side of this. Like, a prosecutor would have to say, well, I legitimately thought, you know, they were going to be completely honest with me. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how that would go. I, you know, if, if you're, if you're not expecting a, I don't know, wouldn't you expect crooked people to lie if you're a prosecutor? Like, it's sort of contrary to their job. Well, I'm saying that having, set the situation up, it is only going to go one way. Oh, I, I misunderstood what you're saying. Don't you okay. think? Though? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, ne- there's, there's never going to be a moment where a, a jailhouse informant is dangled at like a really nice deal and goes, oh, I can't help you. No, they're not going to do that. <sighs> well, this one, uh, it did get close to, you know, it's, it's hard finding exoneration cases with Christmas links. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's all we got then. So I, I, I don't have anything else on this one. I don't know if, I don't think they did it because they had all these witnesses and the witnesses make sense. And the story that the prosecutor told didn't. I don't see how they were, like, if they hadn't known who that was, I would buy the story more. But it's almost like they just picked that guy out because he was all the way across the state. Yeah, it is weird that they it's just the fact that it's like it's the only car in North Carolina with New Jersey plates. Can you imagine trying to do that today? Oh, no. Yeah, that I don't buy that for a second. And then the two eyewitnesses. I I don't understand the eyewitness situation where if they like legitimately said it's absolutely not him how they could misinterpret that to be like they identified him. Well, you know, you hear what you want to hear. I don't, I don't see that. I don't see how that is a thing at all. I I don't think it should be. Well, that's all I got on this one. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 
5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys a a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the the Crime XS code there. Um, You can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. 
Pure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. 
Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all top of the same new era ball caps. 
Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention New Era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Excess. You can also use the code True Crime Excess at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime XS.